It's car con carne. And it's Carcone Carne, still in quarantine. Quarantine Con Carne, sponsored tonight by C&H Financial Services. My guest today, he is the owner of Bloodshot Records. He is Rob Miller. Bloodshot Records, 26-ish years in existence, a Chicago institution, a an alt-country, insurgent country, defiant roots institution. Uh, thank you for doing this. You are, you are too kind to have me. So we're going to talk about Bloodshot history. I'm dying to talk Bloodshot history, but... Last I saw of you, you were in a bathrobe, drinking some few whiskey in a, in a cabin, maybe the cabin you're in right now in the woods. <laughs> yes. Just I, to- I, I have, I have the, uh, I didn't want to wear the robe again, you know. It I thought very- about it. It's right over there, but, you know. It's quite becoming on you. Well, thank you. I, I said earlier when I was uh, promoting this interview that we can make a drinking game out of this interview every time that. John Langford or Robbie Folks or Kelly Hogan are mentioned, you should take a drink. Can do. <laughs> it seems like a pretty uh, easy game to lose if you're, if you're drinking at home. Losing is in the eye of the beholder. It, it really is. So I don't know. I feel like this answer could go either way because I truly don't know. During the pandemic, how have things been? Have sales and streaming gone up or down? I, I feel like there's a case to be made for either happening, and I have no idea. I early on when there was still some sort of sense of novelty to this whole thing, um, the website was doing great. People were super supportive. Everyone was so desperate to reach out to the community, the creative community that they're a part of and support them in any way they could. But now it's, you know, we're in month four of this three, you know, and, and things are starting to dwindle. And, you know, even if streaming income went up 20%, who cares? <laughs> you know, streaming income is, is next to nothing anyway. So it's, uh, people, I think are maybe, there might be some sense of diminishing returns on all the, all the online concerts. And there, there's just, I think, uh, a fatigue to the whole thing. It's something I, I'm feeling as a podcaster. I, I'm feeling the momentum of doing this every night kind of beginning to wane. And I'm like, well, do I keep doing this just to do it like this? Or do I do I stagger this more? Because you're right. There, there was that wave of momentum. Everyone's online. Everyone's streaming. Everyone's performing. Everyone's podcasting and chatting. And now everyone's like, okay, cool. <laughs> we, we need to do something else now. Yeah. And, you know, the first few weeks of you know getting all your friends or or watching a five person band play from five different places uh you know that that was again there was a sense of community and a sense of survival and and pulling together but then you have so many of these meetings that just kind of <laughs> exactly and, and, you know and it, it's like uh i'll just go read a book <laughs> Well, how have you personally been doing? Uh, you know, I can't complain. I'm, I'm, I'm safe. We're healthy. Uh, you know, the mental health issues are an entirely different matter. But, uh, you know, compared to so many others, uh, 
I, I can't complain. How are the artists doing? And because obviously it sucks for bands right now. They can't oh, it's, it's catastrophic. I mean, this is their livelihood. Um, and it didn't just, you know, touring income didn't just slow down. It ceased. Right. It was, it, was, it just got, it just hit a brick wall and disappeared. And no one can tell us when it will be back. Um, you know, like the collapse of 2009, you know, people keep asking me, you know, in interviews, like what are other grave moments, you know, in, in Bloodshot's history? It's like, you know, the collapse of 2008, 2009, September 11th. Um, but those things seem to have a logical progression or a way out. And this, it, it, uh, depending on which websites you like to look at, um, it could be over already, or we're just in the beginning of this. And, you know, as much as I would love to be in a crowded room with lots of like-minded music fans screaming along, that seems to be just about the stupidest thing in the world to do right now. <laughs> it does. So right at the onset, right, right as we're beginning this conversation, uh, let's just say the website, Bandcamp, people can buy merch, support artists and the label that way. Uh, lots of great vinyl stuff. Lots of artists. I, I've got Rookie behind me on yes. display. Yes. Uh, the recent um, band, I got to say Bandcamp has been unbelievable with their free days where they give all the money to the artists and the labels um and and again direct support to the to the artists websites or to our website is is the most helpful thing to do i mean you know the giant companies you know who they are i don't need to i don't need to name them they'll be around after this is all over and they're doing better than ever so they don't need your help uh, small businesses in your community need your help. The bookstores, the the restaurants, all, all and you know humble little endeavors like ours. <laughs> let's let's talk about starting your humble little endeavor. In the beginning, a label was never the idea when you put out that first compilation. Was it like a long term career goal? <laughs> uh, absolutely not. <laughs> it was it was a hobby. It was something to take my mind off my shitty day job, and it was something to potentially get us into shows for free. There and, we go. And if, if it uh, made its money back, then, you know, all, all the better. <laughs> well, it's interesting. In that period, 1994, the Chicago that you represented uh, on that first compilation, very different from the Chicago that was being put on display on a national level. I mean, this was peak national interest on chicago as a music peak, peak pumpkin peak pumpkins urge overkill liz fair major label feeding frenzy things were nuts that chicago was different from the scene you represented part of the same we're all yeah. but certainly not necessarily what was on the top of mind of the music writers of america at the time Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, every band that played the double door that had a, a big muff of effects pedal was getting signed after their second show. And it's true. It was just, it was just, yeah, it was just a mob scene. And then I would go to Zar bar or deja vu or, or clear, Clearwater saloon or something like that. And there would be these really cool bands and there'd be like nine people there. And I thought there's this whole other thing going on. 
um, that is, is being totally ignored. And it seemed like we could stitch that all together with, with kind of a compilation and, uh, and see what would happen. And pretty quickly, you know, people in Dallas and San Francisco and New York were like, hey, we've got all these kind of weird, rootsy, country-ish bands, too, that no one seems to care about. And I was like, oh, great. We, we've tapped into something that no one cares about all over the country. <laughs> when did you realize this is a business and my shitty day job can go away? Was it the Ryan Adams album or was it before then? Um, well, it was kind of two different questions. The, the moment I realized that this was something that I could not just dismiss as a lark was when, uh, I think it was not, South by Southwest 1997, and I was sitting at La Zona Rosa with uh, this person whose record had just come out the month before, her first record, Nico Case, and it was the end of south by the traditional show that alejandro escovedo put on and we had just released his first record with us and it was packed and it was all the industry sleaze bags and it was and i was nobody and i was just you know hopped up on trucker speed and tequila and just scared to death about <laughs> the whole thing and and right before alejandro came out um the the pa the the announcer said bloodshot recording artist Alejandro Escovedo and the place went nuts and I'm just describing it the, the hair on my arm uh, and I was like when I, when an artist of the caliber of Alejandro Escovedo trusts you with his art that is a serious partnership and a serious proposition and, and jumping around a little bit uh, that album he put out I think it was 2001 man under the influence Yes. That's, talk about a high watermark for... Oh, yeah, yeah. To have that in our... To be responsible for shepherding that record out into the world. Oh, absolutely. I, I distinctly remember listening to the uh, uh, rough mixes of that on a plane on my, on my Walkman. <laughs> or it might have been a Discman. No, it was a Walkman. It might have been a Discman. Um, and what? It might have been a Discman. It might have been a Discman. Yeah. Um, and just, just being utterly floored by it. I, that that record has not aged a day. It is a it is a classic. Oh my God, Castanet. So I mean, the, oh yeah, this song yeah, has teeth. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Dennis, who's watching the Facebook Live, says rookie Vandaliers, Jason Hawk Harris, plus the many moods of Mr. Langford. God bless Bloodshot. <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about John Langford. When I when I hear John Langford, when I see John Langford. I'm still that kid hearing Memphis, Egypt by the Mekons for the first time. And I can't believe that this is the guy, the same guy. And he's this super accessible, super talented, highly prolific, basically ambassador for this music, for this modern American insurgent country music. Yeah. I mean, the, the Waco, the, I mean, the first time I heard the Waco brothers, I, actually it was probably when I was producing Sound Opinions, it was like 1993, 1994, and they, came, they played Bad Times, and oh, I, yeah, yeah. it just blew my mind. Tell me about your relationship with John, how you came to know him. Well, I mean, like you, and, you know, maybe, may, I don't want to extrapolate my experience to yours, but, you know, being a person who is fond of unpopular music, I was, of course, a fan of the Mekons. Um, in college, uh, my roommate at the time, 
was a writer for the, the college paper and he brought home Honky Tonkin to review and he started playing it. I was like, what is this? And, uh, you know, fast forward 30, 30 something years later, um, you know, he came, I did a radio show in college and the Mekons on their first or second U.S. tour, this would have been 88 or something, they came down to my radio show and I went to go see him and it was the first time I saw him and, and I just, you know, like everyone both fell in love with and feared both Sally and Susie and was just amazed by how terrible and amazing they were sometimes within the same song and they they came down to my radio show and then after the, after the show at the blind pig in ann arbor they apparently they, they wrecked their van on the way to east lansing and john remembered that and 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 then you know we asked him to be on the first compilation and he we can't get rid of him <laughs> he's fantastic and i mentioned the other uh two pillars of this drinking game uh, Kelly Hogan was your first employee. Is that right? That is correct. Kelly Hogan was our first paid employee. She drew a paycheck before we did. I think it was $500 a month. And at that point, it was just a labor of love for you as you were. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were still sinking. I still had the day. I still had the, the, by that time, maybe half day job and was just all the money was going back into the label. And she moved up here. We had mutual friends. I did not know she was a singer. And her first day on the job, we kept getting phone calls from like Rolling Stone or Spin or, or a guy at Billboard. And we were like, why are they calling us? They never return our calls. And they wanted to talk to Kelly. And we're like, who are you? Who is this person? And then she, uh, she worked there for a year, year and a half, and uh, was pretty directly responsible for us signing Nico. Um, because she got, uh, somebody sent us her, uh, Nico's demo or her first album as when it was released in Canada and, and Kelly wouldn't stop playing it to the point where, you know, like with the light bulb being shined in your face, you just finally break down and confess and go, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. And, you know, and I, and it, it was like a weird moment of clarity that, that took, you know, several beatings over my head for me to, to get it. Um, and then, yeah, we saw Kelly at, uh, Shubas, and I think it was either John Wesley Harding, she will correct me on this, uh, or Dale Watson was playing, and they had Kelly come up and sing with her, and she got off stage and uh, came up to me, and I fired her, because I was like, you have to sing. <laughs> you can't be working at a dumb little label, you have to be singing. The job was holding her back. Yeah. That's brilliant. I could listen to Drunkard's Blues every day of the week. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's so great. Insurgent Country, my son, who is a late teen, he is finding his way through American music and outlaw country. And I said, oh, let me introduce you to some other songs. And I use the term insurgent country, the bloodshot term. He's like, oh, that sounds badass. <laughs> but it is. I mean, you really nailed it. And, you know, it's not cow punk or whatever, the alternative Insurgent Country, was that just an epiphany? Was that something you, you spent a night brainstorming? How did that term come about? Uh, that was the result of uh, myself and Eric Babcock, who was one of the original founders. We we're both English majors, and it was a lot of drinking with a thesaurus. 
quite honestly, in my backyard. And uh, all good things begin. <laughs> Roger, you know, he's he he he's, he's quite the guy. <laughs> What's another word for Roger? No, for brother. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about. And, and so to go back to that, like we were looking because we were doing this thing, but the c word carry was such a loaded term. I mean, people reacted to it, especially in the underground, you know, in punk scenes. It, it, it had such a, a stink to it. So we had to find something that had that kind of rebellious spirit to it to put in front of it. So people might be like, oh, this isn't Billy Ray Cyrus. Okay, maybe I'll give this a listen. Uh, you have the bottle rockets. I love that you reissued their early stuff. I, I was just thinking today, there's a song on one of those early albums called Gravity Fails my favorite double entendre in music history for the past 30 years. Maybe it's something in my jeans. Maybe it's something in my jeans. <laughs> I love those guys. Yeah. Yeah. They it, are it still holds up. I mean, Oh, those two records are again, cornerstones of, of this kind of music, but they have not aged. I mean, those things, th those, those records are amazing. And, and to be able to reissue them, I mean, it took them forever to get them out of the clutches of their previous labels. And they were just sitting there, just they weren't available for 10 or 15 years and they didn't have any control over that. And, and you know, as a, as a, as a label geek, it, it kills you when, when you see that kind of stuff happen. So to be able, again, for these guys that I've known for 20, 25 years now at this point, mostly as a fan early on where I would be, you know, too intimidated to really even talk to them. Um, to have them again entrust us with their with their art is 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 deeply gratifying. And they're kind of an honorary Chicago band. I mean, they're a Missouri band, but we we've kind of claimed them as our own. Yeah, speak for yourself. Keep them in Missouri. <laughs> One of the challenges a smaller label has is putting out an album that blows up, and then seeing that artist move on to a bigger label or a higher paying label after that record blows up. Old 97s, the Ryan Adams solo experience. Let's start with Old 97s. How did you find them? Well, uh, I disagree with your premise, but I will answer that question. The hey, well, let's, let's start there. Tell me about disagreeing with me. Well, you, you say that it, it's, it's disappointing when a, a band goes on to a bigger label. Um, for... Uh, for us, I, I mean, I consider it a victory because I don't want to be much bigger than we are. I've, we've always wanted to maintain a, a, a scale that is comfortable for us. And, and I don't want to get so big that success demands more success to keep up at that level. I would prefer to keep it kind of a family affair and if someone goes on to a bigger label that's what you want to happen that's a success for everyone a rising tide lifts all boats and you know when when Ryan when Ryan's record broke i mean that allowed us to try a lot of admittedly dumb things with some bands that never had a chance but that we loved but it also allowed us to put money in a rainy day fund or it allowed us to um support nico's records in a more vigorous fashion um so you know 
again, like when, when Ryan really hit, like people were like, oh, you need to hire more staff. You need to do this. You need to buy, you know, office furniture with brass armrests and potted plants. And, you know, is this a, this is a meeting table, this thing you pulled out of the alley on Irving. And I'm like, yeah, this is what we want to do. So I, I, I don't, yeah, again, it's like you, if you become a victim of that boom mentality, then, you know, the, the bust inevitably comes. And, and how many labels have you seen or how many bands you've seen that have just like tried to go with this exponential growth and then, and then, you know, it just collapses on itself. That is the most Chicago answer ever, <laughs> which is great. I mean, that's, this is why this label can exist in Chicago. You, no effect. Yeah, that, that is true. I'll go along with that. I mean, you know, we would not have survived in any of the company towns like New York, LA or Nashville, because there is that, you know, uh, command to grow. And uh, yeah, I think it was Edward Abbey that said the only, the only thing that grows just for the sake of growing is a cancer cell. And uh, so I don't, I don't want to do that. So we so, keep it comfortable when like Justin Towns Earl like wants to move on. It's like, we understand our limitations as a label. We're not gonna, we're not gonna jeopardize the careers of the Langfords and the Hogans and the Folkses. <laughs> um, so that we can all of a sudden spend a lot of money flying publicists around the, the country or buying life-size cardboard cutouts or, or doing all kinds of stupid things. You know, we, we, we appreciate what they did. We keep a good relationship. They move on. And, you know, then the cycle continues. You know, when, when Justin's records broke really well, then that allowed us to invest in Lydia Loveless. And, you know, it just goes on like that. Old 97s, just to drop anchor on them for a minute. I, 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 it's, I think it's hard to argue just the songwriting talent of Red Miller. I, his lyrics are unmatched. I mean, his turns of phrase. You could are, argue it, but you would be wrong. His, his <laughs> lyric writing is just, it blows me away. It's just, it's highly quotable, uh, sing-alongable. Even on Wreck Your Life, Victoria is still, I mean, it's a, a standard. Yeah. In the oh, old yeah. ones catalog. Yeah. Um, and you know, for, for people, for, before I moved to Chicago, I spent a, a while being a production manager and a stage manager and, and a tour manager. And I spent a lot of time around musicians at their unguarded moments, um, through, through their day. Some of them were heroes of mine. Some of them I loved as artists and some of them were just unrelenting assholes. And so when, you talk about the old 97s, I have to say that as nice as they are talented, as straight up human beings as you're going to meet in this racket. Well, as you described, as you answered the last question about bands moving on, you described your reasoning in a very Chicago way, in a very blue collar city kind of way. Based on that, I've got to think that as a label, you're probably not signing many people who you don't personally enjoy. Like, like, why, why on earth would I do that anyway? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you have to, to love them artistically and personally, don't you, to, to invite them under your umbrella? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I have to be buddies with them, but I have to respect them as people. Um, and really why, you know, this is, it's, it's too hard a business already. So why would you get into this with people you don't like or, and, and for me, it's, 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 it, 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 it may not 
be utterly nakedly transparent to other people, but it feels like it is to me that if I looked at someone and went, oh, that's going to do well, to, to sign them for that is, is just, it's a disingenuous premise for all involved. And I think it's very transparent to fans as well as, you know, the interpersonal stuff. I mean, I, you know, some of, some of the people we work with are kind of hard to get along, but I really like their music and I believe in working with them. I find that it has merit. So I will, I will put up with the, uh, people who are somehow impossibly even more sarcastic than I am or something. <laughs> Let's talk about Robbie folks. It's truly really one of the area's great. <laughs> one of the Not area's that I was talking about him. <laughs> oh my. He's one of the, the great troubadours, one of the great storytellers and performers. Talk to me about Robbie. The, that Robbie is not a household name, that he is not covered by a whole spectrum of artists from all genres is a is an is empirical evidence that we as a culture have really really bad taste. <laughs> I don't disagree. I mean, he 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 is he's a, a master writer. He can he can play and turn micro genres on their heads, but still bring them, and without belittling them, uh, and and he's an unbelievable guitar player. Absolutely, through the years you've taken chances, you've done different things. One thing I've I wanted to ask you for nine years, the JC <laughs> Brooks put out some fantastic music on Bloodshot. Was there? This is like classic R and B and soul very different from the insurgent country we came to know. Was there a push at that point, And is there a push today to kind of stretch the limits of who you are perceptually? Yeah. You know, I go through life thinking that everyone's record collection has as much diversity as mine. And I've found that that is not true. Um, so that first J.C. Brooks record and and when I would see them live, that was right in my sweet spot. I mean, right now, what what is getting me through the past couple of months has been the uh, the entire the Stax Volt singles collection on what is it? I think 312 CDs. You know, I'm just going through that, and it, it's a gift that never stops giving. Um, I love that old sound. Oh yeah, yeah, and and so I mean I connect it. I can connect all the releases together. Um, yeah, it was a stretch for for some people, but it was right in my sonic sweet spot. I I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, early on, you know, when when the first old ninety sevens record hit, everyone wanted people. I mean, there was a certain segment of the population, that whole no depression crowd or whatever, that wanted us to just do nothing but make records that sounded like Wreck Your Life over and over and over and over again, which would be incredibly boring. Um, the first time I heard that doesn't sound like a bloodshot band was for Robbie Folks's first record with us. I heard it when we signed Alejandro. I heard it when we signed Nico. It was like, you know, it's like people like wanted us to be this very narrow thing and they decided what could and could not be a bloodshot band and nothing will make me, nothing brings out the contrarian in me quicker than 
telling me you can't do that. Uh, you know, it, it goes back to my punk rock days where it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, you're into punk rock. You can't, you can't like, you know, Peter Tosh or you can't like Jimmy Cliff or you can't like, you know, Devo. You know, I was like, I thought the whole thing was about freedom and expression and, and, and doing what you liked. And so when, when people wanted to early on pigeonhole us, we did do a couple of things that were pointed reactions to that. But J.C. Brooks is not one of them. That was just like a band and an album that I really dug. And they were in Chicago. And they, would turn, they would turn venues upside down. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, now we've got Baron. Not, not, I mean, we've had Barons Whitfield and the Savages for a while, which is could not be, you know, less alternative country or whatever. But I, I saw him in college a few times. And man, that, you know, that guy is as punk as they come. And uh, happy, to, happy to have him on board. I mean, and this is kind of where I'm going. The insurgent country, when I heard J.C. Brooks, I'm like, okay, that doesn't fit that definition. But I get it from a American music baseline modernized for the 21st century. Like, that, that is the roots of American music. Yeah, it's not country. But it's, it, it's a kindred spirit in the sense that it draws from everything that was built as, found, as foundation in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, you know, internally, we haven't used the, the term insurgent country for a long time because it did become something of a straitjacket. And people were like, oh, well, this is an insurgent country. I'm like, what, who are you to tell me what the term we coined means, you know? And so it just, it just got too annoying. So we, we dropped it. Now it's just like, you know, underground roots or whatever. And the other thing that's getting me through these times is the Harry Smith uh, anthology of uh, of folk music, you know, so that's, that's just all over the place. So yeah, I mean, stylistic straitjackets or genre, you know, genre fascists have never really. Uh, See, I'm right there with you. <laughs> this podcast, I mean, yesterday's podcast, I spoke for about an hour on pop punk. We're talking about bloodshot artists today. I had Ramsey Lewis on two weeks ago. I've had you know, metal bands like Nonpoint and Veil of Maya because like you, if you go into my phone, it is, it's insane. It, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's and, and I don't know if it's, it's, you know, I know rap music has it, but you know, there's this whole like tedious argument by self appointed arbiters of authenticity that, oh, I love talking to an English major, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been on so many panels and stuff where it's, or interviews or it's like, well, how do you define who can? I'm like, whoever does it well. I mean, you know, over the years, like so many people have busted our chops. Uh, we've got when about Langford, like how dare he, how dare this Welshman come and tell us what country music is. He's not telling us what it is. He's doing it the way he wants to. He's doing it the way he heard it. I mean, the Ramones wanted to be the Beach Boys, but they weren't good enough players. You know, so it came out sounding like the Ramones, and that's a pretty good thing. Um, you know, so if you if you are, you know, an idiot punk rocker, and you pick up a Hank Williams box set, and all of a sudden you're like it, it, obsessed with Hank Williams, and you're going to try and do that, it's going to come up. It, you're going to come out with something completely different. So why bother wasting your time with like, are you allowed to play this music? Are you allowed to be influenced by this music? Ugh. Don't get me started. <laughs> You're lucky we're not in a car right now because I'd be. <laughs> well, I'm not lucky we're not in the car because we'd be having a yummy meal together. 
it, it's a bummer. So we talked about some of the, the big pillars of Bloodshot, some of the obvious ones, Langford and Alejandro. Let's talk about, since we have people listening, we have people watching, and we talked about the need to support you, or the desire to support you and, and keep this label afloat, this local independent label. Let's talk about some artists that people may not be familiar with, that maybe if they're looking to, to dive in, maybe they can grab a record uh, off your website or Bandcamp. What are some of those releases that you feel like, oh man, I wish people were aware, like were more aware of this because it's just so good. You know, a lot of what we do is by its very nature because by their very nature, indie label owners are very idiosyncratic. A lot of these bands never have a chance to break it in, into the mainstream. And that's fine. I love them just the same. Um, so, but, but then there are, are a lot of other bands that it, it mystifies me why they weren't more popular. So I could talk about Trailer Bride and Devil in a Woodpile till I'm blue in the face, but those were oddball bands that appealed to my extremely oddball sens uh, sensitivities. But bands like uh, uh, The Blacks, I thought, were one of the best live bands and and in the face they just didn't have it right together you know and and oh those records are fantastic bobby bear jr bobby bear um, jr of course uh one of our recent uh releases came out last year jason hawk harris just a, a fantastic fantastic nuanced beautiful compelling musician i, I mean Music. He's not a beautiful musician. Well, I guess some people might think. Anyway, um, inside that counts. <laughs> um, and rookie, you know, right, right over there behind you. I mean, those these guys are, you know, who who knows what. So their record came out the day that the city closed down. Their sold out release show was yeah all canceled. Yeah, and you know when people hear that, I've got we've we've had people. I've had friends who you know, outside of the industry who follow what we do on kind of a casual level, level who come to me, who have been coming to me going, this rookie band is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, I can't wait till you can see them sometime. Oh, it, it's so, I had you, about a few months ago. It's just this wonderful breezy guitar rock album, uh, Melodies for Days. You kind of just made them sound like Seals and Croft, but you know. <laughs> a lot more edge than Seals and Croft. <laughs> it's like Firefall, but heavy. Uh, wow 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 you trumped my seals and croft with a firefall yeah you want to go yacht rock with me rob Miller? you want to go yacht rock ouch um yeah like you know right before south by this year you know writers and media people who don't typically return our phone calls were calling us about rookie like where can we see them at south by and I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's, it's rare that, uh, you know, talent and, and acclaim come together. And it seemed like it was, it was merging very nicely on this one. And, and then everything fell apart. And the audience will be there when we all emerge from our cocoons and when it's safe to do so. It's funny, right before, right before I think the record, before the record came out, I saw a review of the Rookie album in Classic Rock Magazine, which is, I swear to God, one of my favorite magazines in the world. It's a British Yeah, magazine. oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know you're well aware of the magazine, but I, I love seeing this, it was a capsule review of the Rookie album. I'm like, holy shit. Then of course you did a sampler with Classic Rock not long after that. Yeah. 
I wish magazines like that were made in America still. Oh, those, those, and those guys are great. I, I, I was actually in London a, uh, a few years ago and I went over to their, their flat and, uh, and was hanging out and, and they were like, oh, let's go get some pints. And I was like, of course, let's go get some pints. And we walked out onto the street. It was in uh, Notting Hill and uh, we were going to turn right, which in British is right. Um, and, uh, and, and, and th there was this house that was surrounded by, uh, police just not, you know, doing anything, just kind of surrounded. And there's, you know, some people milling around and, uh, and they're like, oh, we can't go that way. The street's blocked off. Uh, Liam or no, one of the Gallagher brothers was under house arrest and he lived down the street and there was some right. kind of big, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So we had to go left. They were there, made the trip to the UK worthwhile. That, that's it. That, that's what you want. But I, my point was, I, I love the magazine because it's respectful of everything that came before and it has a very forward-thinking vision. I thought, man, rookie, the, what, a, what a great pickup. Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. Again, not like classic alternative country, whatever that is. But, you know, when I, the first time I saw them live was at our, our 25th anniversary party at, at the Smash Plastic space uh, on Diversity. Um, where we where we get our LP, where their LP was made, and uh, and I was like, man, these guys are like kind of like a hillbilly deep purple, and I and I mean that and I mean that in entirely okay. a good way. That, that's the elevator pitch right there. That's all you need. <laughs> and I was like, man, these guys are bringing that like fucked up seventies boogie thing with some like southernness to it. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm in, you know. <laughs> I, I, from now on, will only use Hillbilly Deep Purple. It's a much more respectful way to describe the band. But the album is so good. And that, that is a recent Bloodshot, super recent Bloodshot release. And you can buy the vinyl. You can stream it. Uh, of course, there are samplers and compilations, um, which is a great place to start. And you have everything on your Bandcamp page. Um, but I'd recommend once you, once you find something, once you lock into something on one of those compilations, dig deeper into the artist because there's just so much we, we can't possibly talk about every artist on your label but there's just so much good stuff Thank and you. It, it, very different sounding from artists and, and, and 26 years in like you know people keep asking how do you keep doing it? it's because things like rookie fall in your lap where you just feel that ex that ex that excitement of discovery you know that had that has not gone away and uh it, you know, the first time I saw Jason Hawk Harris, oh my God, I was just full. It was at, it was at our uh, South by showcase a couple of years ago and uh, at the Continental Club. And I was like, this is incredible. And I, I saw the Vandaliers there. I saw the Vandaliers for my first time last oh. year and uh, out in uh, Joliet. I've never seen a band like that. I mean, that's just heavy violin rock. I mean, what that was magnificent. <laughs> Yeah, it's like yeah, punk Tex Max or something. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, the, when they played, uh, they played this festival out on the East Coast. I went to last summer. They they opened for the Mekons, and the Mekon, you know, everyone was there for the Mekons. But by the time the Vandaliers were done, people were like, "I I need to go sit down." Yeah, they just they took that venue and 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 tore it up into little pieces, and and it was it was so much fun to watch people who were. I mean, that's the thing for me, like being the, the dork who stands off the wings to watch an audience be unexpectedly floored is, is so much fun. Like they're, they're there because 
they're there for the band after them. And then all of a sudden, they are just brought in to the moment and you see that people are as excited about it as you are. That's the, the first time uh, Robbie or Robbie folks, when he opened for Dave Alvin at Fitzgerald's like a billion years ago, um, everyone was there for Dave Alvin. But by the end, by halfway through Robbie's set, people were completely on his side and just going, what am I seeing? Right. What am I hearing? This is amazing. Well, that's and, what we as music fans hope for. We yeah. walk into every show that we don't know the opener, praying that we have that transcendent, holy shit, what did I just witness? Yeah, I, I want every day, <laughs> I, I want to hear Howlin' Wolf for the first time every day. <laughs> uh, on a related note, Smokestack Lightning, one of my favorite guitar riffs in, in all music history. Keith someone has many of them. True. All right, so the Bandcamp page, Bloodshot, is it... It's just bloodshotrecords.bandcamp. Bloodshotrecords.com. Uh, I don't know the Bandcamp. But search Bloodshot, and it's yeah. all a, a yeah, universe. And, and I think they're having another free day on July 3rd is what uh, I believe is happening. So that, That's how I got my rookie album. Well, thank you very much. And, and let, I can't get out of this without saying, back when I had my shitty day job, which was uh, like drywalling and painting, houses on the north side and in Wrigleyville and you know in Rogers Park and Evanston and stuff Q101 all day long that's where I heard Radiohead and Breeders and all that kind of stuff for the first time so and, and I was there playing bloodshot music in the middle of the night on Sunday night <laughs> when all the uh, ne'er-do-wells and dangerous loners were listening so I, like me <laughs> yeah right that, that's our crowd I do want to thank everyone who's been watching on Facebook Live. Much appreciated. Uh, the podcast will exist on carquincarney.com and all podcast platforms and YouTube. But I am going to kill the Facebook Live. Okay. And there we go. That was great. Thank you for doing that, Rob. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>